0: Christchurch, New Malden, 23rd of May, 2021. Ruth Henson speaking on The Calling, Judge Not to Forgive and to Love Our Enemies. Right at the start of our series on walking in the footsteps of Jesus, Nathan introduced us to the idea of a disciple being covered in the dust of his rabbi due to following so closely in his footsteps. In the light of that, I was interested to read this recent quote from the Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell. The first followers of Jesus weren't called Christians. That came later. They were called followers of the way. The Christian faith is a way of life. In fact, Jesus himself says to his friends on the night before he dies, I am the way. Jesus shows us what humanity can be like when it is lived God's way. His kindness, generosity, goodness, and forgiveness are from God. This is what God is like. We heard from Katie last week that we should expect this way of life to be costly and sacrificial, just as it was for Jesus. A key reason for that is because this way of life we are called to is radical and countercultural. This very surprising quote from the rock singer Alice Cooper appeared in my Facebook feed last week and seemed very appropriate. Drinking beer is easy, trashing your hotel room is easy, but being a Christian, that's a tough call. That's real rebellion. We're celebrating Pentecost today, and we only have to look at the birth of the early church in Acts chapter 2 to see just how radical and countercultural they were in their following of Jesus' way of life. We read that they had everything in common and sold their property and possessions to give to anyone in need. And we also see what a wonderful witness this was to God's love and care as they were joined daily by new followers of the way. Looking to the example of Jesus to see this way of life lived out perfectly provides a blueprint for our calling as disciples, which is our focus today. As Ephesians 5 puts it, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We should also listen to Jesus' words as he offers us practical examples of how to follow in his footsteps and live up to our calling. He spoke of this throughout his ministry, but it is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7 that he sets out his manifesto for the Christian life, and provides us with example after example of what this Christian counterculture will look like in practice. I would definitely recommend reading all three chapters to appreciate the full extent of Jesus' clear and authoritative words. But beware too, as the challenges of what we are called to are inescapable. This huge challenge is summarised by one of the verses we heard in our first reading. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are called to aim for God's perfect standards, following as closely as possible in Jesus' footsteps. The word translated as perfect also has the sense of complete which reminds us that we cannot pick and choose which aspects of Jesus' manifesto to live by or when to follow his example. Having said that, we have had to select three aspects of our calling to focus on this morning. And I'm pretty sure that if we were allowed to pick and choose, these three would be quite far down the pecking order, as they certainly fit the labels of radical, Countercultural and challenging. The first aspect we're going to look at is don't judge. As a society, we rather enjoy seeing people being judged, don't we? Just think of the popularity of talent shows with that one harsh judge who has no qualms about laying into the contestants. And what about social media? which provides us with instant opportunities to judge other people's lives. It's no surprise that we only reveal a tiny, filtered fraction of our realities, knowing that we're laying ourselves open to judgment. And then there's the treatment of those considered celebrities by the press and social media trolls. We watch these people being built up and celebrated only to be just as fascinated when their lives are raked over and picked to pieces. When Caroline Flack tragically committed suicide after facing such scrutiny, her friends and colleagues encouraged people to be mindful of a phrase she herself had shared on social media. In a world where you can be anything, be kind. And yet, within days, it was the next celebrity's turn to receive the same sort of treatment, with no lasting lessons having been learned. But, as we heard in our reading, this is one of the countercultural calls Jesus challenges us with. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let's just clear up a couple of misunderstandings to begin with. Some will respond to this challenge by saying that we need to evaluate and discern in order either not to be led astray ourselves or to support and provide accountability to a brother or sister in Christ. But Jesus is not prohibiting that. The word used here for judge is the same used elsewhere for condemn, and carries an air of self-righteousness and denouncement rather than self-awareness and love. Another argument is that we face judgment from God anyway, so the logic of this verse fails. But God has every right to judge us because he is holy and righteous and we fail to meet his perfect standards. And yet he remains merciful, longing to forgive and redeem us, even sacrificing his son for our sake. As we read in James 2 verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. We claim this glorious truth for ourselves, but are still quick to condemn others. The story of Jonah provides a great example of this. We often imagine that Jonah runs away rather than doing God's will because he is scared of going to Nineveh or thinks he's inadequate for the job. But a closer reading of the book reveals the truth. When the people of Nineveh repent and God shows them mercy, Jonah is angry and cries out to God that this was the very reason why he tried to avoid coming to Nineveh in the first place, because he knew God would show compassion which he doesn't agree with. He even asks God to end his life because he is so full of condemnation. Because Jesus understands how easily we fall into the trap of condemning others while ignoring our own shortcomings, he uses extreme hyperbole in the illustration he gives in Matthew 7. was the same word used for the main beam in a house or a large mast on a sailing boat or even a battering ram. This is a crazy image. Someone with a 40 foot long beam protruding from their eye, trying to extract a speck of sawdust from the eye of someone else. Jesus is clearly challenging us. Over the blind eye, we will happily turn to our own sin while rushing to condemn others over even the smallest things. We are the harshest judges when it comes to the mistakes of others, but the sharpest of defence lawyers when it comes to our own shortcomings. Jesus exemplified this non-judgmental attitude we are called to, showing love and welcome to those ostracised and rejected by society. In John 8... When the Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman who has been caught in adultery and ask whether she should be stoned to death, he says that any one of them who is without sin should be the first to throw a stone. They all leave one by one until only the woman and Jesus are left and he asks her, Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus doesn't condone her sin, but he doesn't condemn her either. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Secondly, we are looking at the calling to forgive. We are quick enough to judge others when their perceived wrongdoing is nothing to do with us, But how much more is this the case when we are the wounded party and we judge them principally with unforgiveness? But the warning from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is very similar to our previous point on judgment. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will Will not forgive your sins. Jesus has a parable to help us to understand this challenge, which we read in Matthew 18. Peter asks Jesus whether he should forgive someone who sins against him seven times, probably thinking that that sounds pretty impressive, as the Jewish custom stated that three times was sufficient. But Jesus responds with 77 times or in some translations, 70 times 7. That's 490 if your maths isn't quite up to it. Now, he's not suggesting we should carry around a notebook and keep a tally of how many times we've forgiven someone until their chances run out. Seven is the biblical number for completeness, and Jesus is calling us to keep on forgiving until it becomes second nature He then tells the story of the unmerciful servant to put this into context. A servant is forgiven a debt of 10,000 bags of gold by the king but then refuses to let a fellow servant off a debt of 100 silver coins. So the king has him thrown into jail. Jesus is teaching us that we should show forgiveness to others in the light of the huge debt that we have been forgiven if we have understood just how much we have been forgiven and genuinely accepted jesus redeeming sacrifice and the price he has paid for us then we will grow in our willingness and ability to forgive others it's important to point out that forgiving someone is not the same as condoning or accepting their behavior and it's not about letting people walk all over us. Forgiveness is a choice and a decision rather than an emotion or a fuzzy feeling. Choosing forgiveness when we don't feel like it will mean going to God on our knees and allowing his power to work through us because it's not something we can do in our own strength. The person who sinned against us has God's judgment on them just as we had until we repented of our sin and accepted Jesus' sacrifice in our place. Forgiveness is choosing to let go and not let hatred rule in our hearts. Are you familiar with the story of Corrie Ten Boom? She was imprisoned in Ravensbrück concentration camp along with her sister Betsy for hiding Jews in their house. Betsy sadly died in the camp, but Corrie was released. Years later, Corrie met one of the guards from the camp who reached out his hand to her and asked for her forgiveness. She describes the moment like this. I stood there. I whose sins had again and again been forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. I had to do it. I knew that. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently as she reached out her hand she goes on to describe the incredible thing that took place the current started in my shoulder raced down my arm sprang into our joined hands and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being bringing tears to my eyes I forgive you brother I cried with all my heart I had never known love so intensely as I did then. But even then, I realised it was not my love. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. And that mention of love brings us to the final aspect of our calling, which we're looking at today, and probably the most challenging. Love our enemies. Jesus opens the section of his sermon on this theme by saying, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Hate your enemy is definitely not a quote from the Old Testament. It is rather an attitude ingrained in our psyche. Jesus immediately continues, But I tell you, love your enemies. Romans 5, verses 8 to 10, remind us of the way God sets us an example to follow in this regard. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son. In spite of this example, It is easy to dismiss this call as an impossible challenge. Martin Luther King spoke about this in a sermon he gave on this subject. Many would go so far as to say that it isn't possible to move out into the actual practice of this glorious command. They would go on to say that this is just additional proof that Jesus was an impractical idealist who never quite came down to earth. But far from being an impractical idealist, Jesus has become the practical realist. The words of this text glitter in our eyes with a new urgency. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, It is love that will save our world and our civilization, Love, even for enemies. Again, Jesus has a parable to help us understand this calling. In Luke 10, we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus tells a story to demonstrate the answer to the expert in the law's question as to, Who is my neighbour? In response to the command to, love your neighbour as yourself. In the familiar story, it is an enemy Samaritan who shows love to the injured man, teaching us that everyone is a neighbour we should love, even our enemies. We heard recently from Nathan about the different words for love in the ancient Greek language and how inadequate our own word love is in comparison, covering such a range of meaning. Unsurprisingly, the love being referred to here is agape love. The love which God shows to us, the love which is unconditional, the love which puts others first and seeks the best for them. We are called to love our enemies, not like them. Agape love does not rely on likability. Just as with forgiveness, it is a choice and decision rather than a feeling or emotion. Choosing love can break the chain of hatred and bring healing and redemption to us, as well as to those we show this love to. This love is from God and has the power to transform both the giver and the receiver. Jesus doesn't leave us scratching our heads to think what this might look like in practice. He has two very helpful starting points for us. In the section we read from the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us to pray for those who persecute you. It's very hard to keep feeling hate and anger against someone you are praying for. As you ask God to reveal himself to them and change them, you start to look for the best in them, for signs of those changes. They say that prayer changes something, and oftentimes a significant part of that change is in us as we become open to God redeeming a situation or relationship. Then in Luke 6, another passage where we read of Jesus' challenge to us to love our enemies. He immediately follows this up with the instruction, do good to those who hate you. We may need to take baby steps in this direction, relying on God's strength. Just saying hello, paying them a compliment, refusing to join in with gossip about them, even offering to get them a coffee can make a real difference to a situation. Did you watch last weekend's football match between West Brom and Liverpool where the Liverpool goalkeeper Alisson scored a last-minute winner from a corner in stoppage time? The interview with him afterwards was quite remarkable. Earlier this year, Alisson's father drowned in a tragic accident and he was unable to travel to Brazil for the funeral or to be with his family due to Covid restrictions. In the interview... He paid tribute to the love and compassion shown to him by fans, players and management of opposing teams, even Liverpool's fiercest rivals. He explained that as a Christian, he believes that this is how we see God's love in action, working through the words and deeds of the people around us. By looking at these three aspects, We've only just scraped the surface of the challenging, countercultural calling Jesus has for us as we follow in his footsteps. But I just want to finish by saying how appropriate it is that we've looked at this topic today. Firstly, because it is Pentecost, when we remember the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us. There is no way that we can fulfil this calling in our own strength. So let us welcome God's gift of his spirit and allow him to work in us, to make us more like Jesus. But secondly, it's also very appropriate to be studying this theme on the day of our annual parochial church meeting. Historically, strong differences of opinion have sometimes led to rather heated exchanges and words spoken in anger. It seems very opportune that as we tune in on Zoom this afternoon, we will have fresh in our minds the call to judge not, but forgive and love our enemies, who in this case could be those with opposing opinions. May our meeting be characterised with God's transforming love And may that be increasingly true of our lives too in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead. Amen.